Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Morning, church. It's good to be here. Um, good to have this opportunity. Um, I did joke with, with Bobby last week that this is probably the last time I'm going to go second. Um, the simple fact that every time I go second, it seems like whoever goes first takes half the sermon and um, starts you guys off. Um, that's probably a good thing. Um, so it is interesting how, you know, we, I mean, Bobby and I, we didn't have a conversation apart from, you want to go on the night? I'll go on the 16th. Okay, fine. And um, what she shared last week was incredible. Um, and and the, where we landed is where I want to start from. So she's done all the, 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 the groundwork. Um, and I trust that um, I don't confuse you guys <laughs> after what she said. No, it's all good. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I also just want to shout out the fathers in the house, um, a.k.a. every single man in the house. Um, because it is, it's not just about uh, natural children. Um, indeed, the reason why I'm standing here today is because of the men in this church. Um, every single one of you has somehow, some way shaped me um, in, in my confidence, in my pursuit of God, in the desire that I have to be faithful to the call that's on my life. Um, obviously, you guys know my natural father, who is the greatest father in the world. Um, so, uh, <laughs> woo, Mike Powell. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the, the title of my message today is The Generational Blessing of Creativity. Um, so for those of you that are writing notes, uh, The Generational Blessing of Creativity. I'm going to start with a story. It's real quick. Those of you that know me know I like a little story. A little story time. In the early 1870s, the United Brethren Churches held their annual convention on the campus of Hartsville College in Hartsville, Indiana. Uh, in one particular convention, one year, the college president opened the conference with great excitement. And he was commenting and he said, we live in an exciting age, the age of inventions. This is 1870. Uh, one of the brethren, one of the bishops, he wanted to know what kind of inventions that this guy was excited about. And so he said, um, he said, you know, what is, give me some specifics. You know, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you excited for? The college president replied to this interruption saying, why, you know, for example, I believe that one day we'll be able to fly through the air like birds. This is in the 1870s. The bishop responded, this is bishop. Anointed man of God, he responded, that is heresy, absolute heresy. The Bible says that flight is reserved for the angels. We shall have no such talk at this conference. Other accounts put it this way, that he said men will never fly because flying is reserved for the angels. It's interesting that this man, this bishop, he went home um, to his family, had two sons and a wife, um, it's interesting to note that these two sons disagreed with him. Within 30 years, Orville and Wilbur Wright had managed to record the first flight of a manned plane. And they invited their father, Bishop Milton Wright, for a quick ride. Bishop Milton Wright joined their father for 
joined, sorry, joined Orville for a flight at 350 feet. Remember, this is the man who 30 years earlier had said that this is heresy, that flight is reserved for angels. Legend had it that he got in the plane and they were flying at 350 feet and he leaned in closer to his son and said three words. Now his son didn't know what to expect, didn't know whether his dad was going to be scared, whether his dad was going to panic. But Bishop Milton Wright, in his first flight, leaned into his son's ear and he said, higher, Orville, higher. The generational blessing of creativity. So what we're going to look at today is how the Lord, his passion for us is to establish a culture here in this church that will last for generations. It will take some mindset changes. It will take some bold decisions. We, we may have to take some risks. Actually, I promise you, we will have to take some risks. Um, we'll have to talk to some strangers. We'll have to take a leap of faith every so often. We'd have to believe God for things far beyond that which we've believed him so far. But it's going to happen. And I'm excited about the time when my great-grandkids can ask me about what used to happen when Tina would pray. And I'll tell them. But we'll get on to that in a minute. Now, I was actually uh, writing this, this sermon uh, probably about six, seven months ago, just on the back of some of the things I was listening to, different podcasts, um, and God just started to explain a few things. And then I heard about this story about Bishop Milton Wright, you know, the anointed man of God who said that flight was going to be impossible, that no man should fly. Thank you. And then obviously his two sons, the next generation, turned around and, and smashed that to bits. Um, it's interesting that one generation's full stop is in the next generation's comma. Um, that when one generation says, this is how far we can go with God, the next generation is tasked with the, the, the task of picking up that baton and saying, actually, no, we can go further. Um, so, yeah, so let's look at time first. Now, before we start talking about creativity or, or just before we get into the scripture, let's look at time in itself. <clears throat> now, time is our way of measuring the rhythms that are expressed by the creativity of God. If you look at Genesis 1, it started with just measuring day and night. Okay, When God commanded the sun and the moon in Genesis 1, that's when the first idea of time was introduced into uh, into humanity, let's say. So before that, everything was just stuck in an eternal place, let's say. But the moment when he said, let there be light, and he separated it and he called it day and night, we now had a rhythm. Day, night. Day, night. And so time, in essence, it's just our way of measuring the rhythms of God's creativity. Our heartbeats at 120 BPM. Okay? Um which, I'm not sure it's actually at 120 BPM, but when you listen to dance music, it synchronizes with your heartbeat. Okay, and we're, what we're doing, we're, we're measuring that creativity and our heart and our body responds to it. Then after, you know, we got used to this whole day and night aspect, we learned to measure the seasons. Okay, now 
Because if you think about it, the, the early man wouldn't have known this is week one, week two, week three. All he would have known was this day and night. Days didn't come into it in terms of giving it a name until quite late on. So all he knew was the passing of the sun and the moon. And then he began to realize the seasons. Another aspect of God's creativity. Why? Because he recognized the revelation of seed, time, and harvest. So he knew if he planted this seed here, the sun and the moon would alternate, and at some point, something would come up. And so he was now able to measure his life and organize his life uh, according to time based on seasons, not just on days. Finally, uh, the first man began to measure the years as he recognized his own mortality as he's grown older. Okay, so where before, you know, he's a young whippersnapper going out, hunting, uh, killing the wild beast, bringing it home for mum, dad to cook on the stove. Uh, hopefully they don't leave the fire on. Um, <laughs> now he's in a position where he's realizing that he's not as young as he used to be. He, doesn't, he maybe doesn't understand what's going on. And science itself hasn't proved it yet because if you look at science um, if those who study biology done your GCSE biology recently uh, the cells in the body they recreate themselves all the time they're, they're constantly refreshing themselves why is it that um, the body can refresh itself I think every seven years you get a new skin um, why is it that that happens and yet we still grow older so the early man wasn't able to understand this we now know from scripture that it's because of sin and the presence of sin in our body um, is what causes death Science hasn't figured that out yet. So now he's gone from just looking at measuring day and night, and then he's gone to the seasons. Oh, if I sow this, this happens. Now he's more aware of his mortality. I'm getting older. I'm getting weaker. I can't run as fast as I used to. I'm not as strong as I, as I used to be. Now, as we grew more sophisticated as a race, time went from being observational to authoritative. So whether for it was just a way to mark the creativity of our Father in heaven, it now became our God. So much so that our modern microwave generation will risk life and death to catch a tube, even though there's one a minute behind it. Like, seriously, on most good lines, maybe not the Piccadilly, but... Personal beef, I don't like the big of like. Uh, <laughs> on most lines, you see people literally risking everything just so they can get that tube. And yet there is one a minute behind. I'm sure your boss doesn't really care if it's 9.05 or 9.06, really. And if you walk a bit fast, you can probably make up that time that you lost by waiting that one minute. You see it all the time. People get trapped in the doors. Uh, there are delays, all that kind of stuff. Because this is, this is the generation that we live in where time is not observational anymore. It is our king. Now, time when incorrectly esteemed will be the biggest constraint to manifesting the promises of God in the way that God intended. We serve an eternal God. And his thought pattern is unbowed and unfettered by time. He operates in the freedom of only having to deliver on his word. His time constraint is simple. I spoke it, it came to pass. 
And yet we approach him with, we spoke it, uh, Tuesday's around the corner. Um, just wondering, <coughs> could you make sure delivery is by, because, <laughs> you know, I got some bills. And, uh, and we've gone to an eternal God and we've brought time before him and said, I need you to fit into this box. And so he's made promises to us as a church. He said that we're getting a building, right? How many of us have maybe gone, I've got time, come on, time, time, time. When our response should be, we said it, it's done. Cool. He said it, it's done. I don't need to worry about it. If you had the boldness to say to me that whatever happens, I will be your shepherd and you shall not want. You said it, it's done. I'm not going to approach you like I'm running for a tube. I'm not going to approach you in the same way that my colleagues might approach you. Well, I got that MRI on Wednesday and I got to make sure that... No, 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 no. If you said it, it's done. So as a church, we have to now operate in that same freedom. That the only thing he is sworn to, the only thing he is bound to, is not time, but his word. Uh, there's a scripture where it says he's um, exalted his word above his name. Now, if you study that out, you'd understand that essentially what it's saying is if one iota of his word was to cease and to not come to pass, he would stop being God. So let's say God has made many a promise that he's going to sort out that issue with the business, et cetera, et cetera. God can fulfill the promise to Tina, to Denise, to John, to Cynthia, to 100,000 other people. If he fails on that one promise to Manny, he gets up off his phone, someone else take it. And he will cease to be God. Now, as far as I'm concerned, there's too much of a risk. So, he's not interested in failing. <laughs> it's, it's, what's the scripture in Hebrew somewhere? It says, seeing that he can swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Like, he knew the only thing he could bank on wasn't human beings. Okay, so, this is talking about the new covenant, and this is not even in my notes, but hey, this happens every time. I actually tried to write out notes today. <laughs> Every, so what he said, he said, seeing that I can swear by no greater, I swore by myself. In the equation of how I was going to sort your life out, how I was going to sponsor your life, we heard it earlier in, in the song before we started, there is no orphan spirit. An orphan is someone who, who lives their life without a sponsor. That's essentially what it is when you study it out. Okay, that they have no one to back them, no one to provide for them. Okay, um, so there, there is no orphan spirit in the kingdom. We are all adopted as sons of God, Romans 8 explains this. So, but even still, he couldn't put Manny in the equation. Because if Manny was to fail one time, that would eradicate the whole covenant. So he said, what can I bank on? I can't even bank on the seasons. Because they will one day come to an end. I can't even bank on the sun and the moon in the sky. Just like the early man would look and say, oh, okay, it's morning. Okay, it's evening. And they would build their life around time. He can't even do that. Why? Because 
that too will pass. So, so he looks around, and the way I, I've always imagined that scripture in my imagination is, he's looking and he's going, what's, what's worth it? What can I bank on? He sees the beauty of the seraphim. No. He sees the cherubim. Uh, no. He sees the glass sea in all its beauty. I can't even bank on that. I can't swear by that. I'll have to swear by myself. And so the promises that I've made to Commonwealth are assured because if I was ever to fail on them, I would cease to be God. I'd have to give up my throne. It's like the bank. If you miss a payment, you know you can make all your payments for 20 years and don't hear of them and the moment you miss it by two days. Three phone calls, two letters, and a knock at the door. <laughs> but that's what the enemy would be able to do. If God failed on his promise to you, Abby, the enemy could knock on the door and say, hey, 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 2,000 years, you've been good. But hey, we messed up. You missed it this time. That's why he's called the accuser. Do you remember Abraham? I always loved the story of Abraham, how God asked him to step outside of his tent. And I remember years ago, I was reading that, and the Lord spoke to me a few things about it, and he brought it back to my attention. I've got here, remember Abraham, dot, dot, dot. Um, he steps out of his tent, and God begins to describe the promise that he has to him based on what Abraham can see in the stars. Why stars? It was the closest thing to eternity that God, that Abraham could look at. Because if you look at the stars, as far as we're aware, they're not changing. Now, those who've done GCSE physics will understand stars are changing. They're, they're, um, they go through their different life stages, etc., etc. But when you look at it with the naked eye, they are the same. They're constant. And for the infallible mind, sorry, the, the fallible mind of, of a human being, God had to take him outside of his temple surroundings, a tent. You can pull it up one day, take it down the next day, pull it up. It's, it's temple. It comes and it goes. So he said, let me get your attention on something that doesn't change. As far as Abraham knew, the stars were the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he says to Abraham, step outside your tent. Look at something which tells, that speaks as close as I can get it to speak of my eternity and my constant uh, faithfulness in my promises. And when you look at that, you may have an inkling of just how de devoted I am to bringing my promise to, to pass. It's no surprise that Abraham, therefore, you know, even when faith had run out, believed again. You know, um, Romans 4.20 is, is a great scripture. It talks about that, that he believed and he, he, get, he carried on worshipping even as he was believing. It's no surprise that when God said to Abraham to, to give up his son, that Abraham turned to his servant and said, right, we're going to go and worship. He goes, and I think the book of Hebrews explains that Abraham believed that God would have to raise up Isaac again. So he wasn't going to just kill him just absentmindedly. He killed him. He was prepared to kill him, but as he was doing it, he's believing because he knows how faithful God is because he's been looking at the stars. For us to be similarly freed, we would have to allow ourselves 
to live in a place of absolute trust and confidence in our Father. It is there that we'll begin to operate from and understand the scriptural reality of here and yet to come. If we read uh, the book of John, chapter 4, and the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well, he starts speaking about uh, worship, and he said, the day is coming, indeed, it is here, when worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. That always blew my mind. Not the spirit and truth bit. I've heard so many people preach on that. But the, the day is coming, indeed it is here now. Why could Jesus say that? Because he's Jesus. <laughs> and he knew at the moment that he went to the cross, Matthew 27 verse 50, he knew that verse 51 was going to happen and the veil in the temple would be torn in two. So as he's speaking to this woman, he's both here and in the yet to come. As he's promising us a building, he's both here at friend's house and also in the building. But are we? Are we still allowing ourselves to have that, that moment of depression? I'm not going to say it was anything more than a moment. When you kind of go, ah, another setup, another room, building, another room, another room change, another venue change. Where have you got to go? Where's the parking like? Are we still in the here? Or are we in the yet to come? Can you be here worshiping and saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, and you're also planning the cookout at the building? Can, can you be here and Children's Church or whatever is cancelled today because we haven't got a room, but at the same time you can imagine the amphitheater? See, there's not many amens yet. <laughs> But I've, I've been there, I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen the trimmings, I've seen the doors. At least in my mind's eye. Now, it may look completely different to what I've seen. But it's important for us as Christians to have, yes, we appreciate what God has done in the past. Remember, Ray Hughes said to us, our song definitively is about remembering the works of God, okay, the mighty works of God. So we do that in our worship and, and we sing those songs. That's why that song about um, all my life you've been faithful that's why it resonates so much with this church because that is our man mantle is to remember the works of God. And so as we're singing those songs, we're remembering what he's done and then we're, we're worshipping him in the present at the same time we know what's about to happen. So I can be here in front house and also at CCF, the building. I can also be at the second building, you know the campus building we're going to have. I can also be at the outreach building that we might have and, and the homeless shelter we're going to build. What about the school that we've always talked about? I can be there. Why? Because I'm looking at the stars. And if I could just step outside my tent and look at the stars, I see how faithful he is. The stars stay there. Just Again, I'm allowing time now to be observational as opposed to being authority. So I'm using time to observe and say, that hasn't changed since yesterday. God, you're fine. I think it's in Isaiah. Um, there's a scripture where it says, as long as the sun rises up the next morning, my word is faithful. So if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and there was no sun rising, now in England, it might be a bit difficult to see the sun. Okay, but work with me here. Okay. But if, we were, if you were ever to, able to wake up 
and there's no evidence that the sun has risen in the sky, that's the moment you know that his word has failed. But I've been alive 30 years and there's never been a morning that the sun has never risen. I may have to go on CNN to find it. <laughs> I may have to look at a different country to see if it's there, but it's there. And if it's there, I'm cool. His promises are surely yes and amen. So now as a church, we now need to start thinking in generations instead of just momentary pleasure and achievement. Okay? It's not enough for me just to heal the sick now. The reason why I must heal the sick now is because my grandchildren are going to ask me what I did in response to sickness. And so I have to begin to now move my life in a way that the generations to come will have a template and an example of what it means to serve the Lord. Ray Hughes said this uh, recently. So one of the defining factors that comes with how you know if someone is dreaming the dreams of God is that when they're dreaming the dreams of God, it will never be about your own generation. It will always be multi-generational. It will carry impact in your day, but there's a whole other side to impact that we sometimes overlook. We can have impact, but impact and influence are two different things. And influence is that thing that carries on for the generations to come. Let's open our Bibles quickly to 1 Samuel 16, uh, verse 10. That was my introduction, by the way. Like I said, I started writing this um, ages ago. Didn't know when I was going to share it. Um, hadn't even told anyone about it, really. Um, and then when Pastor gave me the date, I was like, okay, great. Then I went to put it into my diary. Um, and then I realized it was Father's Day. I was like, oh, isn't that cute, Jesus? That you'd want someone to preach about generations on Father's Day. And this, this first bit... Um, is about the importance of a father. So first Samuel sixteen, uh, ten to thirteen. Looking again, my new Bible. So, uh, I know it's up there for you guys. Uh thank you, Father. Let's read verse ten, yeah? So Jesse has seven of his sons passed before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Jesse replied, there's still one left. The youngest, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send word and bring him uh, because we will not sit down to eat the sacrificial meal until he comes here. So Jesse sent word and brought him in. Now he had a ruddy complexion with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Just like every David. Um, then the Lord sorry, that's my Bible. Uh, the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David 
in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. More about that place later. Did anyone notice that, some, that Jesse had seven sons passed before Samuel? So David was number eight. So when God is, is coming to bring a new beginning in the, the whole destiny of Israel, he finds the eighth son. David was the next king of Israel, and yet he had been rejected and forgotten by his own father. Now, correct alignment with the father who could steer David with prophetic leadership and covering allowed him to begin to navigate the breeding ground of his destiny. Okay? Because after this moment, David still went back to the, to the field. Um, just a bit of biblical context for you guys that are interested in this. That same field um, is the field where um, the, the shepherds were when the angels started to sing about Jesus. Um, they call it it's the shepherd's field. Uh, it's just outside Bethlehem. Um, and it's where they would tend the sacrificial lambs that would be offered up in the temple. So when the temple was ready to do a big sacrifice, they'd go and get the, the lambs from Bethlehem, right, which were tended specifically for the purpose of sacrifice. And David is amongst these lambs that have been bred for sacrifice, and that's where he learns to worship. It's no surprise that he later on says, I will not offer up to God something that costs me nothing. Because he understood that worship and sacrifice, somehow they're linked somehow. And so he's there with these sacrificial lambs, the ones that are being prepared for the temple, and he's writing his songs. When a pastor asked me about becoming a worship pastor here at the church, um, I'd been... I'd actually been praying about it for about a month earlier because I felt like God was saying that it was going to happen anyway. And as you can imagine, I was quite nervous. This is, you know, this is a worship church. You know, you don't just take these jobs lightly. <laughs> Not here at Commonwealth. Um, you know, and, and if you look at the team we have and the, the talent level and the, the excellence, the ministry and, and, and the words that God is speaking, Ray Hughes, comes, Leonard, this one, we've had a catalogue of, of the giants of the faith come through this church and speak to us about our destiny in worship. Um, and so I, I feel like God is pulling me in this direction and I'm like, whoa, 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 let's pray about this. And I remember praying a very specific prayer. I said, Lord, teach the shepherd boy to become a king. Because I'd spent all this time in private pursuing him and learning about him and, and writing songs not physically but just my life became a song of pursuit and just learning how to find him in the secret place in the in the shepherd's field but now you ask me to take a position of leadership as public you know the arrows come to me first you know <clears throat> this is not something i'm going to take lightly and so lord teach the shepherd boy how to become a king and he answered me with silence I take the role about six, seven months later. He explains to me that he couldn't answer that prayer. He said, because I didn't take a shepherd boy and teach him how to become a king. He said, the shepherd boy was a king and the king was a shepherd boy. So the only way you can lead this team, I'm just sharing this so that you guys know what we're doing. 
the only way you can lead this team, this, this team of worshippers, this, this band of prophets, as we'll look at later, uh, the only way you can do that is if even in your position of leadership, you keep that shepherd boy pursuit. And in your moment of shepherd boy pursuit, I will start giving you the details of how to lead as a king would. Now I share that because as a church that is moving in, in the realm of, of worship and, and making an impact and an influence in, in worship, um, and, and the, the words that God has spoken over us and the desires that we have, um, whether it be Hyde Park or, or you know, all the different things we've spoken about, chosen, you know, all the different things that we have on our hearts, we have to keep that duality. It's sometimes easy when you get into that position of prominence, which we are going to enjoy, that we forget the shepherd boy. But the only way this church will fully maximize the prominence that God has got laid up for us is when the shepherd boy stands as a king and the king stands as a shepherd boy. And the two must coexist. You don't kill the shepherd boy. You don't turn around and say, well, now that I'm here, my 6 a.m. morning prayers are not important anymore. God, I don't have time to, to, to wake up that early because I've got a flight to catch because Auntie Abby and the intercessors are going over to Norway to lead a burn. These are the things that's going to be happening, by the way. I'm just, I'm just speaking about uh, whether you know it or not. Okay? Oh, we've got to send three worship teams out this weekend because we're, not, we're doing it at Commonwealth, but also we're helping out at such and such church in West London and such and such church in Bournemouth. We don't have time to, to meet together in the same way we did when it was just friend's house. No, the shepherd boy must be the king, and the king must be the shepherd boy. But both needed a father. Turn with me to First Samuel nineteen. Nineteen. So like I said, correct alignment with a father who can steer David with prophetic leadership and covering allowed him to begin to navigate the breeding ground of his destiny. His life would end up being a marriage between the innocent pursuit of a shepherd boy and the purposeful desires of a king. But this is only possible when aligned with a Samuel who found God as a boy and led Israel as a man. 1 Samuel 19, 19-24. So David is, on, is, is fleeing from Saul, as, as you know the narrative. You know, David's now gone and killed Goliath in, in chapter 17. David's only about 17, 18 years old now at this point. And he's killed Goliath. He's ministering in the, in the palace. You know, when, when Saul is in, in a depressed mood and the evil spirit is attacking his mind, they would call David and David would come as a man of excellence and he'd play and the spirit would flee. You think he's got it set, okay? If you think about what happens to the man who killed Goliath, you know, Saul had promised him, you know, I think his dad was tax-free for a year or something like that. Um, amen. Um, uh, that's probably a whole other sermon there. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and David gets married to one of Saul's daughters, you know, there's all these things that are promised to him. The people are singing about him, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands <clears throat> and yet David's on the run. So notice, he's stepping into his destiny, and yet still he's not secure. So where does he go? 
So Saul was told, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came on the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And Saul was informed. He sent other messengers and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time. They prophesied as well. Then Saul went to Ramah himself and he came to the great well that is in Seku and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And he was told they are in Naoth with the prophets in Ramah. So he went on to Naoth in Ramah and the spirit of God came upon him too and he went along continuously prophesying until he came to Naoth in Ramah. He also took off his royal robes and armor and prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and night. So they say, is Saul also among the prophets? So this story became a famous story in, in Israel, and the people were saying, you know, is Saul among the prophets? You know, is Saul among the prophets? This group of prophets, we've heard about this before. When Ray Hughes came last, he spoke to us about this band of prophets. It's the first time that the word band or musical band is used in the scripture. They were a band of prophets. So you have all these musicians and creatives in one place and they have haven't been presided over by Samuel have brought into this culture and have pursued God to the extent that if you were to walk past them you would be changed now we know that as a new covenant experience right that that which overshadows me can impact you but even in the Old Testament, there was such a measure of presence that they walked in. I, I like to call it the presence that transforms, not just the manifest presence that we get to, you know, we experience and, and Christ has been revealed. But there is a presence, there's an element of his presence that we can walk in so much so that if you were to come into contact with me, whatever is broken in your life has to be fixed. That's the expectation. That if you were to walk into this church, like Pastor would say, if you were to slip up and do something right and walk into this church, okay, not even that. Just say you're in the building. That the worship that's happening here amongst this band of prophets, not just those on stage, but those also in their seats as they begin to worship and press into God, that there is such a presence that is upon this church here that if you would only just walk past our room, you're transformed. And so it said, what, what happened to you on Sunday is Saul amongst the prophets. What happened to you? How comes you and your husband are now talking? Well, I was in um, such and such postcode and there was a church and I heard their music and I stood in the door for half an hour with him. And for the first time in 20 years, he told me he loved me. How comes you're not limping anymore? Well, funny story, really, mate. Yesterday I was at church. You were going to church? Well, oh, really? Well, basically, I was on my way to the museum with my kids, but like they heard the music and they were like, oh, there's kids in there screaming. And so we, we went in for about five minutes and then I walked out and I thought to myself, hold on, I'm not limping anymore. And I might go visit them on Sunday. These are the tales that will be told. These are the things they will say of us. Why? Because we have a father, Samuel, a Samuel, who is presiding over this, this congregation of prophets. 
Okay, we've seen it over the past however many months. Pastors have been putting pressure on us. Prophesy. We will prophesy. We will be open to the move of the Spirit. So much so that we will walk in the presence that transforms it as people walk past our church building. Okay, let's move it past Sunday because that's very traditional. How about Monday morning? And you smiled. And in your smile, you answered their, their issues. How about Wednesday? Middle of the week, reports are in the next day. Everyone's stressed. Everyone's planning a big night out on Friday because, yo, it's been a tough week. And you see the guy who's a little bit quiet. God gives you a word of knowledge about suicide. And you meet him at his point of need because you're part of this band of prophets. You've brought into this culture that we're, we're building here week by week, prayer by prayer, song by song, pursuit by pursuit, moment by moment. We're building something here that will transform generations. It's interesting because Ramah means height. Naoth means dwelling place. And so David goes to the dwelling places, the high dwelling places, and he was exposed to a level of prophetic activity, perhaps unlike anything he'd been around before. Now, this is the anointed David, who in the shepherd's field was writing songs, and God was like, no, this is the man I want to set... um, set in order the house of Israel and Judah. But even David had to go somewhere else to find a, a template that would begin to inspire him. So this is unlike anything you've seen before. The prophetic creatives abided in an atmosphere so strong that anyone who met it was radically transformed. Right? So this has now been passed from one generation to the next. This is the generational blessing. Okay. Humor me, you know, what did David learn in this time with Samuel? What did he see? What did they speak of around the campfire? We put so much, um, we, we, we give David so much acclaim in the scripture, and rightly so, he was a man after God's own heart. But he had to go to Samuel to find out how to do this culture thing, that you can build a, a, a community that walks in such a measure of presence that people are transformed just through contact. Imagine this, the firebrand worshipper sitting with one who walks with God and has learned how to effectively establish a prophetic culture. David was now no longer alone. And there are many of us who, just like David, have had our own shepherd's field anointing, okay? And our, our, our pursuit of God has been in private. And it has blessed us so richly. And God is saying, okay, Now's the time to call in my Davids from the field. Now's the time for them to be congregate around the fire and to exchange ideas and to exchange uh, uh, notes and remember the works of God so much so that they all walk out in faith, leaving this high dwelling place, okay? And then now they start going into the banks and they start going into the schools and now they start going into the pharmacies and they start going into the hospitals and now the hospitals are empty now the banks have solved their credit crisis. Now the schools have fixed the suicide issue because my Davids have congregated around the fire in this band of creatives and now they're going back out and now London is never the same again. David was no longer alone. We are now no longer alone. Is this where the Tabernacle of David template was established? We don't know. David had an idea to set up 
a place of worship where people would worship day and night. If you study it out, there was loads of prophetic activity that happened there. I think, was it one of the, um, I don't know his name, one of the chief musicians, his, Jedaniah? Chenaniah. This guy's job, I believe it was, if, remind me if I'm wrong, um, was to literally, if you study it out, it was to lift his head above the song and hear what God was about to do, the song of the Lord. If you study it out, literally it says, he would stand there and, and as the music would be playing, Chenaniah would go, we're going this direction. Just to lift. There's that person in, in, in the church that would just lift their head. There's a few here. During worship, things were happening. Oh, okay, right, this is where we're going. When Cynthia gets her song, why? Because she lifted her head. When Ghost starts dancing, yeah. <coughs> why? She lifted her head. And she felt, oh, this is where he's going. When Tommy gets his word and starts to prophesy, he lifted his head. Those are the people that we know and recognize. But every single one of us have the opportunity to lift our head above the song and say, Thus saith the Lord. Sorry. So is this where this template was established? Did he have a conversation with Samuel and say, Teach me, Samuel, teach me, Father, how my generation can do this? And so now what was hidden in the time of Samuel, he had to go to Ramah, uh, Naoth Ramah, and to find it, now became a national institution. First uh, Chronicles 16. Is, uh, we don't have to turn there. We're not going to read the whole thing. Um, but that's where, for those that are making notes, if you note down First Chronicles 16, um, it's where it begins to explain how... David began to set up his 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 um his tabernacle. Talks about the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Talks about how he distributed to everyone in Israel um, some provisions. So they had a loaf of bread, portion of meat. Talks about how he appointed some of the Levites. Um, talks about the loud sounding cymbals and the lyres um, and they blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Um, this was the day that David first entrusted to Asaph and his relative you know, to give thanks to God as their chief task. So there was a family in Israel that their, their chief task was to give thanks to God. Did he get this from Samuel? We don't know, but it's very, could be, it could be the case. So the prophetic culture that he witnessed in Ramah was conferred upon the people in the establishment of his own tabernacle, but it meets its final embellishment in the building of Solomon's temple. This is now where we go from the importance of a father to now legacy. 1 Kings 3 verse 9. I've lost Kings from my Bible. Ah, here we go. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. So 1 Kings 3, verse 9. Um, let's go from verse 7, actually. So Solomon has, has been appointed king. Um, he's now at Gibeon, okay, which is another place 
where they would go to pray. Scripture talks about how he offered up these sacrifices. Um, interestingly, he offered up a thousand sacrifices. Um, is it because he knew from his father, this is how you go about it? Okay, again, David, when he's um, bringing in the ark into Jerusalem, he says that they, they, they sacrifice every certain number of steps. Okay, and he had this whole culture of sacrifice. Again, he'd grown up as a kid around sacrificial lambs. He would not offer up to God something that cost him nothing. He knew about sacrifice. I believe he passes on to his son. So his son now goes to offer up a thousand sacrifices. And as we know, sacrifice gets God's attention. So God shows up in a dream in verse 5 and says, Ask me what I shall give you. Verse 7, so now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. And as for me, I am but a little boy in wisdom and experience. I do not know how to go out or come in. That is how to conduct business as a king. Your servant is among your people whom you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding mind and a hearing heart with which to judge your people so that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge and rule this great people of yours? So we all know the story. Solomon's there, and he asks God for wisdom. Okay. Does anyone know how old Solomon was at this time? He was like 15. So, 20? I already was 15. He's a young lad. Let's say that. So he's a youth. And he's been asked to lead Israel. He's a youth. He's been asked to lead prayer at Commonwealth. He's a youth. He's been asked to join the worship team at Commonwealth. Just like many of us. <laughs> Me and my wife. Debs. <laughs> the three of us. Jen. <laughs> Antonia, jeez, we're quite young as a team. <laughs> this is good. So Solomon's there, let's say he's 15 or he's 20, whatever. He's a young lad. Why does he know to ask for wisdom? Let's go to Proverbs 4. When I saw this in Scripture a few years back, it blew my ever-living mind. Proverbs 4. Let's read it. Verse 3, when I was a son with my father David, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother Bathsheba, he taught me and he said to me, let your heart hold fast to my, hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get skillful and godly wisdom, acquire understanding, actively seek spiritual discernment, mature comprehension and logical interpretation. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Verse 6, do not turn away from her, wisdom, and she will guard and protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. So Solomon, even in the first however many years of his life, had a conversation with his dad. In other translations, it says, wisdom is a principal thing. It's the foremost thing. It's the most important thing. So he's gone to David and said, Dad, you are the greatest king that we know. You've defeated everyone who comes uh, against you. And you still have that shepherd boy heart. You're writing your songs. We have the tabernacle. 
what's the one thing you would pass on to me? What is the most important thing? Wisdom. Wisdom. And that's how a, how a young boy could be there when God Almighty shows up in a dream after a thousand sacrifices have been offered and says, what do you want? And I can just imagine his, 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 the wheels in his brain going, what did that say? What did that say? What did that say? Ah, wisdom. It's not an isolated incident. It's not an isolated moment of inspiration. And there are things that our children and our children's children will, will begin to achieve and begin to step into that to the world may appear to be isolated incidents and isolated situations. Oh, did you hear about, you know, such and such, they, they, they took the church in this direction or they took the worship in this direction. They wrote this song, which became a global anthem. The first one that Commonwealth had ever had. Great. But it's not an isolated incident. Because what they don't know is that child, when she was two and three and four years old, would sit in rehearsal and just listen to, to Mike Power, Mike Brown, as they began to talk about the prophetic. And she would hear... The, the older folk in the church speak about pursuing God with such uh, with an innocent heart, with that childlike heart. And as they heard these things, they were inspired. And so she went to her notebook, started scratching out some ideas. And that becomes the thing she asks about in 50, 60 years' time. That becomes the song that changes the world. Now, some of us might not be around to see that. But guess who records it? heaven. How do I know that? Because David lived a life of pursuit so strong that every single king after him in the Bible is recorded as being good or bad according to David's example. It's crazy. You would get Hezekiah's great-grandson, whoever that was, and he's come to the throne at eight years old and the Bible says he was good in the ways of his father, David. See now why God says, don't, don't, don't think about just time. Time has to be observational, not authority. Use it to observe, okay, I'm going here. All right, all right. But for now, the eternal promise of God is that he will do this in our midst. He will do this through me. He's asked me about this. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't even need to know how or when. All I know is that he has mortgaged his word to his name. That if his, ne that if his word was to cease, he would have to cease. And he, that's too much of a risk. That the, the, the rates on that is too big. So he's not going to take that risk. He's going to make sure that whatever happens, his word comes to pass. So when God tells me in 2011, January, he says, I want you to learn how to heal the sick through worship. It takes nine months before I see the first healing. And then a whole other year before I see the next one. And then I see four in five months and then I don't see any. I don't need to worry about time because all he said was heal the sick through worship. So what I need to be concerned about is healing the sick through worship. That's my only obsession. Because when I obsess about the eternal word of God, you know who I start obsessing about? God. And has there ever been a man who's obsessed about God and been let down? Has there ever been a man who's obsessed about God and not walked in his power? That has not enjoyed his presence? There's never been. We've never seen it. It's never been recorded. 
He says about the man in John 15, uh, man or woman, who would dwell in, in him, that divine, he says you'll start to bear fruit. See, what he did there, he took them away from, uh, he, he took time to be observational. He said, this will happen, and now you'll bear fruit. That's going back to that seed time of harvest. It just happens. We don't know what day they're going to bloom. The trees are going to bloom. We actually don't know. But we know that they're going to bloom. That's when time becomes observational. I can see that this is going to happen. I don't know what day it's going to finally come to, to pass, but I know it's going to come to pass because it's never not come to pass. And so I'm looking at the tree and I'm going, okay, maybe it's tomorrow. Okay, no, it's not. It's not. Whatever, it happens. Okay, we can now go on. And our time is observational. It's no longer our king. So Solomon sends to the throne. He takes his father's advice. For all of David's flaws, he left his son with no doubt as to what he should pursue while in power. Uh, Samuel, the name of God, that's what it means. It established a culture in which David, the love, loved by God, could thrive and he gave birth to Solomon, peace and wisdom. The name of God fathered a man in the love of God and he gave birth to an era of peace and wisdom that Israel had never seen before or since. This is the generational blessing of creativity. Now when you say that title, most people think, oh, he's going to talk about poetry, singing songs, etc., etc." Well, I heard someone say it this morning when I was praying. I listened to a, a um, I think it was Ray Hughes. He said, we are all creatives because we're made in the image of the creator. So we can scrap that whole, oh, but I'm not creative. So whatever it is that is your thing, it could be intercession. Okay? Do you know how creative intercession is? There's a hole. I fill it. There's nothing there. And because of my words, something's created. That's creative, Okay? Maybe you are a singer. Maybe you're a doctor. Okay? And in, in a moment of confusion in, in, in the surgery, the Holy Spirit speaks and says, this is what you need to do. It may go against conventional wisdom, but God is more concerned about the patient living than about what conventional wisdom may say. And who's to say that you might now be the pioneer that the whatever board of doctors come and find you and say, how did you do it? Now, you've been praying for an opportunity for 20 years as you've been working in that hospital and you've been bouncing around, you've been mistreated, you've been um, ignored, you've not got that promotion and you've been just working really hard for 20 years and yet still maintaining your place of devotion and praying and, and seeking after God, serving in church, carrying bags, carrying boxes whilst the church still didn't have a building. Maybe you helped carpet the building when we, when we finally got it. And you just did all these things that you didn't think were connected. But in heaven, heaven keeps a record and says, that's the one I can trust. And I told them I'd, I'd, I'd prosper them. Oh no, but he hasn't given me a direct word that he's going to prosper me at work. Let's go to the book of, is it third John? Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper, even as your soul prospers. So there we go, it's in the scripture. I, I told them that I'm, I am their shepherd, therefore they shall not want. Uh, it's, it's quite obvious. It's in black and white. You shall not want. I told him in Romans 10, 
that if any man calls upon the name of the Lord, he shall be saved. I then had to back it up a few scriptures later when I said, no man that has called upon the name of the Lord has ever been put to shame. Just in case it wasn't clear. And seeing that I could swear by no greater, I swore by myself saying, in blessing I will bless you, in multiplying I will multiply you, and in increase I will increase you. That's the new covenant. When you begin to live a life that is driven by the desire to pave the way for the future generations, as opposed to self-seeking desires, you qualify for the promise of Psalm 89, 20 to 37. I'm not going to read it because it's quite long, but it starts with, I have found my servant David, and I've anointed him with oil. In the midst of my up and down university years, that was a scripture that the Lord said to me. He said, I found my servant David, I've anointed him with oil. Didn't always make sense. Didn't always understand why. Even when yesterday morning, I was asking my Lord, why? Why would you love me the way you do? Not from a position of like, I felt like I wasn't deserving of it or whatever. I just, it just hit me how much you love me. And I said, why? And he said to me, he said, my love is my reasoning. And my reasoning is my love. And he said, it won't make sense to you get up here. It won't. It won't make sense to you reach heaven and you go, oh. Because his love is his reasoning and his reasoning is love. I found my servant David, I've anointed him with oil. It then goes on to talk about how God was going to maintain the name of David's house for generations to come. Because David lived a life that was driven by the desire to pave the way for future generations. David set aside millions, millions and millions, millions, millions of pounds worth of resource for Solomon to build the temple into which God would come and fill it like with a cloud, so much so that the priest couldn't stand to minister. Did you also know Solomon wrote over a thousand songs? David writes these songs in the field, in, in the palace. They become the songs, the, the anthems of, of, of his generation. And just like Ray Hughes always talks about, the, the songs we write today are not just for today, but they are to give language and lyric to the next generation's interpretation of God. So we must write what he's done and, and how faithful he's been so that the next generation don't have to figure it out. They already have a point of faith where they know that he showed up for mum, he showed up for dad, he showed up for Commonwealth, he showed up for Pastor Rod, he showed up for... for, for where every single member in that, te- in that worship team, when they were going through a, 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 a really difficult time, he showed up for David, showed up for Denise. He answered that prayer. How do I know? Because it's in that song. We have one of those songs already, Yahweh. Right? Like a few weeks ago when, when I think Angela was singing Yahweh, I was at the back of church, a song written by my sister, and and I heard you guys worshipping in it for the first time, because I'm usually playing when you're doing it. But I was able to stand at the back and just stop and see the effect that that chorus has on every single person in this church. Now, one day she may share the story of how she wrote it and why she wrote it, but it's a testimony. And immediately we gather around the testimony and Eve is now receiving a blessing from that. 
your storehouses are being filled because of what happened in secret that you may never even know about. But her faithfulness to write and pen the lyric that comes to her in that moment of whatever was going on at that time has changed the lives of at least 50 people. Oh, hold on, I forgot. They sing the song in Camarillo, Jubilee. So let's make that at least 200 people that at this point in life can walk around saying, it's okay, Yahweh. Like, whatever happens in life, there's at least 200 people on the face of the planet who can turn around and say, it's okay, Yahweh. So when your boss has that situation going on and she comes to you and says, hey, um, I need some advice. It's okay, Yahweh. I can brag on her because she's my sister. So. But when how did you figure that out? And we were struggling with that for weeks, that report, that spreadsheet. How did you know what to do? You're not usually good with IT. It's okay. Yahweh. <laughs> Let me tell you about my, my father in heaven who gives me these ideas every so often when I'm in a, when I'm in a bit of a pickle. Let me tell you about him. It's okay. Yahweh. So now we have language and lyric that my kids will sing. That might be their bedtime song, their, their lullaby to get them to sleep. Okay? I might actually get them to record it. <laughs> Play their sleep, sleep, sleep. <coughs> Auntie DeBoer. Anyway. But where we were thinking we needed a seraphim and cherubim to show up in order to have an impact and influence our church. All we needed was a song from a testimony. And now generations are being blessed, even now. There's at least three generations in this room right now. Because there were grandmothers here, there were mothers, right, and there were children. So we have at least three generations sitting here now. And each one has been blessed by that song. This is the mantle that we have to impact and influence generations because of the creativity in our midst. So how do I do that if, even if I'm not a singer? Well, I will take that song that's been written by our singers and I'm now going to digest it. I'm going to study it because my thing is prayer. So that song now becomes a prayer. And as I'm praying, I get this answer that impacts Kensington or it impacts Croydon Council. Please, we need some answers for Croydon Council. I can say that because I live there. You know, whatever. Maybe it's Wilsdon. Maybe that's, that's the area that you live in. Maybe it's, it's Aldgate. Maybe that's the one that's on your heart. But that song links to your prayer. And then your prayer has a breakthrough in the government in that area. And you're there. You're, you're in Essex, maybe. But God laid Aldgate on your heart. And he laid that song. And all of a sudden it match, matches. And the angels are now released on assignment to impact Aldgate, and we don't even need to take credit for it because we're just a band of prophets that gather maybe in secret for now or maybe we're in the tabernacle moment where we now become a national institution or maybe our children will then build a temple around that which we have done here. But every single moment of worship in Solomon's temple could find its heritage in Samuel's group at Ramah. Every single miracle that happened in Solomon's temple Every single miracle our grandkids are going to walk in, every single giant that they're going to slay will find its root 
in what we did at Naoth, in the pursuit that we had in secret before the building, even though we thank God for the building, but what's about to happen in that building has its roots when we just took the ark and removed the tabernacle and set up. Then we picked up the ark and the Levites would put it on their shoulders and say, right, let's go here, this hotel. Oh, let's go to this building. Oh, we don't have it anymore? Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll go over here. And as we traveled with the ark, we began to develop a discipline of pursuit so much so that our grandkids and our great-grandkids and the president of the United States in 60, 70 years' time who encounters a member of our church who's in government and he gets blessed. Why? Because of what they did at Naoth and Ramah. When they would worship and worship and worship and worship in the presence that transforms. What will we leave behind? What will they say of us in years to come? Second Samuel twenty one fifteen. I've just got two more scriptures. And I know definitively the Lord wants to share a few things specifically to a few people. Thank you, Father. Second Samuel twenty one fifteen. Oh yeah, this one, I like this one. I I only read it like recently and it just really blessed me. Now the Philistines were at war with <coughs> again with Israel. David went down with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. David became weary. If there was one person you wanted in a battle against the Philistines, it was this guy. Okay? So this is now near the end of his life. Okay, he's been beating up the um Philistines since he was 17. Okay? Um and now he's maybe 60, 65, and he's weary. Look what happens. 16, verse 16. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels, six pounds of bronze, was armed with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. This is another giant. But where is he? He's a son of the giant. This is the next generation. This is Goliath. Some people say it's Goliath's son. Some people say it was his nephew. Um, different scholars have different reasoning for it. Verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Zuriah, came to David's aid. Again, Abishai, the son of Zuriah, came to David's aid and struck and killed the Philistine. And David's men swore to him, you shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. If you read all the way down to verse 22, and there was four giants that showed up, and there were four sons who dealt with him. So when David's strength is weak, when David's come to the end of his race, the giant killer is now at the end of his race. And giants show up again. The next generation rises up and says, don't worry. You stay there. We don't want the lamp of Israel to be extinguished. So you stay there. There are... Okay. There are things that families have been dealing with for years. Years that sons and daughters will rise up and defeat. You may be the son and daughter. I'm not saying it's someone else to come. I'm not saying it's someone else to come. But there are sicknesses that have had their hold on families for years. 
And all it takes is one son to rise up and kill that giant. I've heard some preachers put it this way. That he had Goliath and he had his four relatives. That's five. How many stones did David take? Picked up five. First Samuel 17, he picked up five stones. Now, in ancient tradition, when you killed one champion, the champion's family would come out. Okay? So David is there ready to kill five giants, but they don't show up in his time. They don't show up in his time, but he was ready. If he had to, I got you. He takes out the first one. 30, 40 years later, four more show up in one go. And the next generation says, stay there, David, it's fine, we got this. Why? Because you've lived life, such a life of pursuit that we've already learned how to kill giants. So this is now is not strange. It's not strange to find a giant killer in the army of Israel. They find four separate guys kill these giants. So where before Saul was struggling to find one giant killer, David goes, there's four, bang. Turn to Psalms 102, 18. Thank you, Father. Yeah, verse 18. Let this be recorded for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created will praise the Lord. Why? For he looked down from his holy height of his sanctuary, from heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth, to hear the sighing of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death so that people may declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. Verse 22, when, when the peoples were gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Verse 18 says, let this be recorded for the generation to come. So this is a present day reality that David or whoever's writing this psalm is talking about. In their time, the Lord looked down from heaven, okay, and he gazed upon the earth and he set free those who were doomed to death. But it wasn't just important for them to enjoy it in their time. He said, let this be recorded for our kids. Let this be recorded for our kids' kids. Now, when I first got this scripture, when I first got this um, like sermon and the kind of outline of it, I was very nervous about delivering it, okay? Because it, I felt like it was the most important message I've ever preached, okay? In 12 years. Well, since, yeah, I've been preaching for about 12 years. Um, to the point I made sure that I had enough prayer cover. <laughs> and I got to a point where I was like, Lord, whoa, I need to make sure I communicate this in the best way. You know, that's why I wrote things down. I made sure that I didn't you know, go off topic too much. And he said to me, but you've already been living this out. So what do you mean? He said, Isaiah 59, 21. That's the scripture he spoke over my life in October 2007, 12 years ago. It says, this is my covenant with you. The spirit I place in you and the words I place in your mouth shall not depart from you or your children or your children's children. So unbeknownst to me, I was already starting to develop this kind of heart for people. And, and there are those that I've raised up in whatever who've gone on to do some incredible things. There are people that I've sat with who've been blessed and they've gone on 
to achieve some incredible things, more than I might have achieved. But that's fine. Because it's all about my children and my children's children. If you read it in the Amplified, it says your children, your spiritual children, and your spiritual children's children. Okay, just in case you thought it was about, you know, natural, you know, natural children, as it were. So Psalms 102, and this is it, this is where we're going to park, because really I could go on for hours. Let this be recorded for the generation to come, that people yet to, cre- yet to be created will praise the Lord. What do I want to be recorded? Let it be recorded that when the intercessors prayed, finally we had an answer for Brexit. Hold on, let me just read my Bible again. Let this be recorded for the generation to come. That people yet to be created will praise the Lord. Why? What happened? Grandfather, tell me what happened when Antonia sang. The Lord looked down from his holy height, and from heaven the Lord gazed on the earth. Tell me, Granddad, what happened when Linda shared her testimony? <laughs> I tell you, son. The Lord looked down from his holy height. He gazed upon the whole earth. Father, tell me, what, what used to happen when Jemima would prophesy? Well, geez, when she prophesied, the Lord looked down from heaven. He gazed upon all the earth. The prisoners were set free. Nations were changed. Grandfather, tell me the story about the men at Commonwealth. <laughs> they were unlike any other tribe of men you have ever going to find. They were upright, they were loyal, they were faithful, passionate in their worship, passionate in their prayer. Oh, when they would pray, geez, governments would change. Tell me, grandmother, what happened when you guys first went to Poland? Let me tell you about that first Poland trip. We landed in the airport and we saw someone on crutches. In about half an hour, 30 people had been healed. That set the template for the following week of uncanny spiritual activity. Granddad, tell me what happened when you guys opened your building for the first time. And there came a cloud that filled the room. It was so thick, so much so, that the priests couldn't stand to minister. Now that David guy in the corner, he had to put down the instrument. See Ayana, Angela, they stopped singing. All of a sudden, a sound, suddenly, a sound was released from heaven. So tell me, what will the generations to come say about what we did? What will they say about our prayer life? What will they say about our pursuit of him? What will they say about our worship? Now, I have it on solid, solid authority. I'm talking about Yahweh himself. That the generations to come will speak about how the Lord looked down from heaven. And how he gazed upon the earth when Commonwealth would pray. When Commonwealth would worship. When they went into work, lives were changed. When they were at school on results day, 
when that girl was crying because she didn't get the results that she wanted. When that happened, and Jemima went over and gave her a word of knowledge about the college she was going to get into. She was threatened. She didn't know if the college would accept her. But Jemima heard from the Lord. The Lord gazed down on the earth. And our grandchildren would tell the story. Thank you, Father. The Lord also said that there are some people here who have discounted themselves from these promises because they don't think that they can run the race faithfully. This is something I've battled with. Lord, I don't want that position because I don't know if I can live right long enough. You kind of go into a bit of a works mentality and you think it's about your own um, performance. And maybe whilst I've been telling these stories about what our grandkids would say about this church and how our grandkids would talk about clouds you know, filling the buildings and the sick being healed. You said, yeah, that's great. But I don't know if I can be a part of that. If that's you, could you stand? If, if that is you. That we may intervene and save those who have been crowned by their Savior. There are still age-old walls that still separate Thank you, Jesus. Tradition, language, and You've heard me talk about generations to come. And maybe you don't even ever see yourself getting married and even having any kids to talk to about this stuff. Or maybe you've looked around and you've seen every single mistake you've made. And that's made you think twice about maybe pursuing the promise of God. If that is you, if you're already standing, thank you. If, if anyone else wants to stand, please. We just want to just pray over you and I felt like the Lord was saying that he wanted to recommission you there was a fresh grace that will descend upon you from this moment on January 31st no January 28th 2018 is when I got the email from pastor about being worship pastor at this church January the 29th, I woke up as a different man. I said, yes, to the US. yeah, yeah, great. And I told him the next week, I woke up the next morning and something had hit me. Call it a mantle, call it an, uh, an unction, call it an anointing. I, I couldn't describe it, but I just knew what had to be done. And like I said earlier, the shepherd boy who was asking to become a king was now beginning to live as both. That I could be a king and a shepherd boy, and a shepherd boy can also be a king. That's why God didn't wait for David to get it all together before he anointed him. He anointed him before Bathsheba. He anointed him before his mistakes, before the census. He anointed him before he acted in fear, before he ran away and, and, and lived with the Philistines. He anointed him and said, this is the one that I've chosen. And in similar fashion, but almost different fashion, the son of David, when he came out of the water in Matthew 3 and Matthew 4, I think it is, the Bible says that a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God had already said, you've done well before Jesus even healed anyone. In a similar fashion, now, as you guys are standing, the Lord has already declared, well done, 
my good and faithful servant. Thank you that the generations will begin to tell the tale about your pursuit of me. How you didn't give up even though you went left and went right and you twisted and you turned. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Can we just stretch forth our hands just begin to pray in the spirit to these our brothers and sisters. get out and we can find someone to, to pray with them and we can minister to one another and build ourselves up. Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you that you are coming against guilt and shame. Right now, in the name of Jesus, you're being broken off these, your precious people right now, Father. Guilt and shame will no longer reign in the name of Jesus. Every twist and turn has been forgiven, Father. These are your beloved children. Father God, we thank you for the love that is beginning to flow through each and every single one of them. And the fire of your spirit, Father God, begin to bubble up right now in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, bubble up over these people. 
Wash them afresh with purity and innocence. In Jesus' name. people to be involved as well there is no junior Holy Spirit generations the generations shall be blessed in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed
Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, thank you, Father. Guys, if I can just have your attention for a moment. If you're prophesying, keep going. Don't worry about it. If you're in the middle of something, keep going. But the Lord has reset each and every single one of our clocks. And time will no longer be king. Above all else, we now operate for the generations to come Father I thank you for the fathers and the mothers in this place the fathers and the mothers in this place who will establish houses of prayer and worship that will impact the generations we believe you've really enjoyed this message For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 